Steve Lawson mentioned yesterday that his first Shepherds Conference was 40 years ago, 1983. <clears throat> I remember that well. 40 years ago today, actually, was Wednesday of that week, March 9th, and uh, that was the beginning of Shepherds Conference that year. I remember it because that was my third day on the job at Grace to You. My 40th anniversary was two days ago. Yeah, no. <clears throat> don't, don't applaud for me. Applaud for the people who've had to put up with me for 40 years. <clears throat> I get it. <laughs> anyway, it's been a privilege to be here. Shepherd's Conference has grown since those days, and uh, in 1983, I never imagined that I would be up here speaking. It wasn't ever my, my uh, you know, desire to do that, but here I am. And I've been assigned the title, Shepherding the Remnant. And uh, they assigned me a pretty obscure biblical text as well. So I kept the title, and I've chosen my own text. And the text, the text I have chosen is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 31. And in fact, Vody gave me a heart attack on Sunday because when he got up here to preach, he told us to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, and, and then he spent the longest five minutes of my life making some introductory comments without saying which verses he was going to cover. And I'd already studied this text, and, and I had my outline in mind. I had a list of points I wanted to make, and so on Sunday morning, I sat over here squirming for what seemed like forever wondering if I was going to have to go home and, and prepare a whole different sermon. And then finally, Vody asked us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And I breathed a huge and audible sigh of relief, kind of so noisy that Darlene frowned at me and dug her elbow into my side. But as it turns out, Vody was just establishing context for me because the passage I want to look at begins in verse 25 where he ended, and we'll go through verse 31. And my thanks to Vody for setting the table for those of you who, who were here on Sunday. But then Steve Lawson got up yesterday and waded ankle deep into my text. And so I'm going to repeat and reemphasize a few things that he said, but that's okay because these are truths that cannot be overstressed. And I want to start by reading the text so that you see the relevance of this passage to the remnant theme. And then before we get into specific details from 1 Corinthians 1, I want to consider an even broader context. I want to sketch for you as quickly as possible the trail of the remnant theme through Scripture so that you understand how prominent this idea is in the Bible, as well as how vital it is to a, a proper philosophy of ministry. And by the way, someone showed me yesterday a tweet where uh, some guy on Twitter took umbrage at this year's Shepherds Conference theme because he asked, when does Scripture ever refer to the church as a remnant? And, and then he wrote, answer, never. So let me say that while I appreciate his attention to words and context, I, I think the point he's trying to make is unnecessarily pedantic. Because you could make the, word, the, the, the case that the word remnant is never explicitly applied to the church anywhere in the New Testament. But I think it's undeniable 
that the principle Scripture aims to teach when it applies the word remnant to faithful Israelites, and especially when the Bible puts so much stress on the purpose of God in redeeming a remnant, this principle is absolutely true of the Gentile church as well. We are a chosen remnant of humanity at large, the few there be that find the straight gate and the narrow way. And I think you'll see that the remnant principle is pretty clearly implied in the passage we're going to look at this morning as well. So let me read this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 25 through 31. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, here's the point of that text in a single sentence. In the plan and purpose of God, the steadfast faith of a small, disadvantaged minority is more vital and more effectual than the collective clout of a powerful majority. Christ's kingdom has never been advanced by the prestige and skill and sophistication of an imposing army. But God ordinarily accomplishes his work here on earth through the steadfast devotion of a faithful but otherwise unimpressive remnant. I think it was Steve who quoted this yesterday from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said, God has always done his greatest work through a remnant. And then he said, get rid of the notion of numbers. And he's right. We as Christians, especially you and me as church leaders, we are not called by Christ to be cool and clever and coercive in order to impress the world. We're called to be faithful and to proclaim the gospel without altering the message, without abridging it. This is a principle 21st century evangelicals seem blithely oblivious to. The work of God and the triumph of his truth does not ultimately require carnal might or fleshly power or human ingenuity or popular consensus or vast armies or stylishness or prestige or or the approval of the rest of the world. We don't need to try to fix the gospel to make it seem like less of a stumbling block or make it sound less foolish. It's not our prerogative to try to make the gospel of Jesus Christ more palatable to the academic elite or more acceptable to the guardians of political correctness or more agreeable to the high priests of scientific dogma or or more impressive to the wardens of postmodern fashion or more satisfying to the people who set the agenda for the teachers' unions or more pleasing to the popular opinion in general. It's not our job to try to adjust the gospel to make all those people happy. God's truth does not need to be propped up by majority opinion. 
God ordinarily accomplishes his purposes through a ragtag remnant that looks fairly small and seems pretty feeble, but that is on purpose. That's what our passage is saying. This is God's design. This is essential to his strategy and his plan of redemption. He has chosen to use a wretched remnant rather than an army of aristocrats and intellectuals. And by the way, that's not only the whole point of our passage. That principle stands out everywhere in the storyline of redemptive history. And it's a message the church today desperately needs to come to grips with. This is a truth that flatly contradicts virtually all of the strategies and ministry philosophies that have dominated big movement evangelicalism for the past four or five decades, if not longer. God does not need human ingenuity to redesign a fresh strategy for church growth with every new decade. And honestly, I don't know why this is so hard for postmodern evangelicals to grasp. In the short course of my 52 years as a believer, I've seen every fad that was ever designed to stimulate church growth falter and fail and ultimately do more harm than good, every one of them. In an obscure corner of my office, I have a shelf full of books on church growth that span those 52 years, and I I keep them in chronological order. They, They start with Elmer Towns when he was championing fundamentalist bus ministry before he switched to cheerleading for seeker sensitivity. And they they traced the career of Ed Stetzer from the era when he was aggressively recruiting for the emerging church movement. And they continue through the past decade when Stetzer and his fellow growth gurus have been drumming up support for wokeism and women preachers. And I ask, what has been the long-term fruit of all of those clever strategies so far? The fact is, every movement that was ever supposed to be the key to unprecedented church growth has burned out and melted down and left destruction and spiritual disaster in its wake, and none of them has left a lasting testimony that Christians today can point back to and say, that was triumphant. Militant fundamentalism fragmented. One of my first Shepherds Conference messages was about the self-destructive nature of shallow fundamentalism, those churches that touted the largest Sunday schools and the most far-reaching bus ministries back in the 1970s are remembered today mainly for horrific moral scandals that were perpetrated by their leaders. Seeker sensitivity didn't fare any better in the long run, and it's no wonder. Those who bought into the the seeker-sensitive philosophy simply could not preach the gospel with any kind of clarity or boldness because the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, and that makes seekers uncomfortable. It's insensitive to them, and so you want seeker sensitivity, you have to tone down the gospel and leave out the hard parts, and therefore, not only did the seeker-sensitive strategy utterly fail to convert unchurched Harry— it had the opposite effect. Namely, it made the church worldly. And today, both of the two largest and most influential seeker-sensitive churches are led by women who have a low view of Scripture and, if not outright, a contempt for the authority of Scripture. 
The emerging church movement fell apart in less than a decade, and I'm glad it did, but before that movement disintegrated, its most noticeable legacy was a large number of millennial and Gen Z young people who were drawn into that movement and then subsequently deconverted from Christianity completely. Sadly, countless kids and young adults say they have deconstructed their faith. You can watch their testimonies on YouTube. Most of them will tell you that they regard their apostasy as a profound awakening. And that's still happening on a large scale, by the way. The woke church of today is basically a discount version of emerging religion from 15 years ago. And all the same rhetoric that you hear from woke evangelicals today, that was standard, standard issue postmodern propaganda in the emerging church movement era 20 years ago. And wokeism will eventually impoverish every church that adopts that trend. So all of the modern and postmodern church growth strategies failed, and their failure was predictable because all of them were attempts to circumvent the divine strategy that Paul outlines here in 1 Corinthians 1. All of them attempted to erase or overthrow the central plot points of the story of redemptive history, the truth that God normally accomplishes his work through unappreciated, unexpected, unimpressive remnant whose only non-negotiable qualification is their steadfast faithfulness. You realize, I'm sure, that across the whole sweep of redemptive history, major revivals and large congregations of believers are actually quite rare. You do see them occasionally in church history, but they're rare. Even in the apostolic era, you didn't regularly have 3,000 souls added to the church. That happened once at Pentecost, and after that, there was a significant revival in Acts chapter 5, where Acts 5.14 says, more than ever believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men and women. But the truth is, the New Testament churches that we know about, the ones that are described in the book of Acts and mentioned in the epistles and written to by Christ in the book of Revelation, these were not megachurches. They were fairly small and often beleaguered congregations that did not get any admiration or honor from the Greek philosophers or the Roman political elite or whatever connoisseurs of popular culture lived in those towns. Friendship with the world was not what they were supposed to be seeking anyway, and they knew it. They understood this, that friendship with the world is hostility with God, and therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's a simple and pretty clear principle that is taught from the beginning of Scripture to the end that in order for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven, the Almighty does not first need to win in the general elections. In fact, the only election that counts in, in eternity is God's choice. And our text tells us that he has chosen not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world and weak things and base things and things that are despised. That's what God has chosen. It would take me hours to survey every place in Scripture where where the Bible actually highlights this principle for us. 
we see it again and again in Scripture that God's power is made perfect in human weakness. Think all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis. In order to preserve the human race so that you and I could be redeemed, God saved only eight souls in the flood. This is the, probably the greatest climate change catastrophe in the history of the world, right? And 1 Peter 3.20 reminds us that only a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Today's environmentalists would be livid about that. And I'm pretty sure that they would insist that whoever devised this scheme didn't know what he was doing. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And this was God's plan not to eliminate the human race, but to save it from certain annihilation. And Noah's family was a very small remnant, but through them the entire world was repopulated. And do you remember how Gideon gathered an army? Gideon, just an impoverished farmer, little guy, was hardly a powerful person. Gideon himself says, my clan is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. He's like, why me? Why are you picking me? And so it's actually deliberately ironic, I think even funny, that when the angel of Yahweh addresses him at the very start, he calls Gideon, O mighty man of valor, because he looked like anything but that. And the Lord, you know, instructs him to go and strike down the Midianites, and he tells him he'll empower him to do that. And when word about this gets out in Israel, 32,000 volunteers showed up to fight with Gideon against the Midianites. And according to Judges chapter 7, verse 2, Yahweh said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel honor themselves, saying, my own hand has saved me. So Gideon tells anyone who is afraid and trembling to go back home, and 22,000 people returned, Scripture says, but 10,000 remained. That seems like a pretty good tearing down of that multitude. But even then, Yahweh said to Gideon, the people are still too many. And he gave Gideon a test, you know, whether the, they knelt to drink from a stream or, or they used their hand to bring the water to their mouth. And when he was finished, the Lord had selected only 300 to defeat the vast army of the Midianites. 300, just a remnant. And you remember how they did it? The Lord caused confusion in the camp of the Midianites, and the Midianites turned their swords against one another. And so it happened as the Lord planned by means that made it impossible for anyone to think that this was accomplished by the sheer might or cleverness of the Israelites so that no flesh can boast before God. And that principle comes to the forefront of Scripture again and again in Old Testament history. Remember that the career of David was marred by two sins. One, of course, we always remember the incident with Bathsheba, where he basically ordered the death of Uriah, and that was such a lasting reproach to him that when he died, 1 Kings 15.5 records, this is the only lasting reproach attached to his name and reputation, that this sin with Uriah, this sin against Uriah. But the fact is, there was that one other significant incident where David incurred the Lord's displeasure, and it was when David took a census designed to measure the military might of Israel. 
And the Lord was displeased. The scripture's clear about that. Because this was David of all people, the same guy who trusted the Lord's strength when he stood against Goliath with a slingshot. David knew that uh, that triumph for faithful believers comes not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of Yahweh. David knew that. And in fact, that is the whole principle of the remnant principle. That's the whole point of the principle in a nutshell. Psalm 33, verse 16, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. Psalm 20, verse 7, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh our God. Psalm 33, 17 says, a horse is a false hope for salvation. And you could, you could actually take that sentence, the, a horse is a false hope for salvation. You could put in that sentence, any earthly tool or strategy in place of the word horse, and it would still be true. A clever church growth strategy is a false hope for salvation. One other example. In the time of Elijah, Ahab and Jezebel, you know, went on a campaign to completely eliminate faithful believers, worshipers of Yahweh, from Israel. And their campaign was so successful And apostasy was so widespread among the people of Israel that Elijah was convinced that he was literally the only true believer left. He told the Lord, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and pulled down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He said that twice, same speech. So it was a rehearsed speech. He'd been thinking about it. And he sometimes I think unfairly criticized for his discouragement because he wasn't, of course, literally the last man standing. The Lord told him, I still have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed to Baal. But look at that and do the math. Historians say that a conservative estimate of Israel's population under Ahab and Jezebel would be about two and a half million And so 7,000 believers in a population that size, that's 0.028%. 0.028 of 1%. That's such a small fraction of 1% that, frankly, it's hard to express. I was going to try to say it in a fraction, but I can't figure out how to make it that small. It's a tiny minority. It's almost too small even to qualify as a remnant. It's no wonder that Elijah was discouraged, and you would be too. But God had a winning strategy that guaranteed the preservation of his truth in Israel through this insignificant minority, a small remnant. In Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2, the Lord condemns those who rely on earthly wisdom and power and prestige because, you know, they think human clout is essential to our success. And he calls people like that stubborn children who carry out a plan, but it's not mine, the Lord says, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. You know, Jesus had, Jesus himself had no expectation that the kingdom of God would advance by winning popular acclaim from the world. Think about it. Neither Jesus nor any prophecy of Scripture ever suggests that there will be any time this side of the millennial kingdom 
when the number of faithful people will constitute a majority. It's not going to happen. If you're not prepared to be part of an unpopular minority, you should get out of ministry. In Matthew 7, 14, Jesus says, The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And he frequently said things to prepare his disciples for the inevitability of rejection by the world. Luke 18, 8, When the Son of Man comes, will he even find any genuine faith left on the earth? He said in John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because you're the chosen remnant, you will be hated by the world, and the vast majority will gladly choose the broad road that leads to destruction. That's the majority opinion. You don't want to be in line with that. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Christ even wove an aspect of the remnant theme into the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. The the source from which the triumph of the kingdom eventually springs is purposefully insignificant, like a mustard seed, and and quite, quite possibly even invisible, like leaven. And again, this principle, the remnant principle, shows up far more in Scripture than I can possibly cover here. But take the King James Bible and a concordance, and you will find 92 uses of the word remnant in 91 verses of Scripture from Exodus through Revelation. And most, if not all of them, well, not all of them, but most of them, refer to the fact that normally the people of God constitute a very small minority, and yet... It is through them that God accomplishes his plan. Romans 11, verse 5, Even so, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, many of you pastor small churches. Don't be discouraged. God requires that you be faithful, not that you have clout and prestige. In fact, look at our passage. Let's get to it. Paul introduces three contrasts in 1 Corinthians 1, and they dominate the opening chapters of this epistle. He keeps making these contrasts. They are wisdom versus foolishness, strength versus weakness, and prestige versus insignificance. And he turns these values upside down from the way the world sees them. Earthly wisdom, he says, is foolishness in God's estimation. Human strength is utterly impotent compared to the softest whisper of divine power. Worldly prestige has zero right to boast in the presence of God. And in fact, I don't know how the apostle could be any more clear here. God hates the wisdom of this world. He is utterly unmoved by the combined weight of all human power, and he has no regard whatsoever for human prestige. The Lord regards human merit as nothing, and it intrigues me, and I find it actually quite impressive and also highly, highly significant that it is the Apostle Paul, rather than one of the 11 guys who had been discipled for three years by Christ, but Paul is the Apostle who writes this passage. 
Because by the world's reckoning, the 11, they were all academically impoverished. They hadn't been trained at the feet of any rabbi who was steeped in elite Jewish tradition. The average religious leader of of their time would have regarded the, the 11 as totally uneducated men, virtual illiterates. They were all working-class Galileans, mostly fishermen. Some of them were from even less respectable backgrounds. One was a former tax collector, and one was a former zealot, and a couple of the others might have been tradesmen of some kind, but none of them had any academic credentials. And during their years with Jesus, none of them actually showed any particular skill for leadership even. The one guy among them with the most influence was Peter, and prior to Pentecost, he's remarkable more for his blunders than for his skill or prestige. John MacArthur always calls him the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. And the point is, these were men chosen not for their rank or their cleverness. They were neither eminent men nor experts in anything other than their lowbrow vocations. So to say not many were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, that's an understatement applied to the twelve. None of the original twelve had any of those qualities. Paul was different. Paul had attained the highest stature as an academician. He, he was academician. Did I say that backwards? Doesn't matter. You get what I mean. He was a smart guy with all the credentials he needed. Acts 22 verse 3 says, He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictest manner of Jewish tradition. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee and a son of the Pharisee. Son of Pharisees, he says, plural. So generations back, this was his family background. And in Acts 26, verse 10, he tells us that before his conversion, when he was the main official religious person overseeing the persecution of Christians, he carried out that task, he says, with authority that was given to him from the chief priests. And when people accused of being Christians were put to death, he says, I cast my vote against them, which is a measure of the power he enjoyed. He had a vote. It means at the very least, he worked at the behest of the Sanhedrin, and he acted on their authority. And so he had close personal relationships with the the Sanhedrin, the council that held power over Jewish affairs. He had been personally mentored by Gamaliel, who even secular histories recognize as one of the most powerful and influential rabbis that Judaism has ever produced to this day. And he trained Paul. In other words, Paul had every one of the advantages that he denounces in 1 Corinthians 1. And it's no surprise that he has so much scorn for these worldly advantages. These things nearly cost him his soul. He lists all those same advantages in even greater detail in Philippians 3, and he says that as far as he was concerned, those things are just about as meritorious as dung. He counted them as loss, he said, meaning that rather than advantages, those things were disadvantages to his spiritual well-being and his service for Christ. And still, it's a fact, however, that The Apostle Paul was, in fact, literally one of the not many who were indeed wise and powerful and of noble birth. 
And yet, throughout the first three chapters of this epistle, he says and does everything he can possibly do and say to emphasize that human wisdom and human strength and human prestige are not essential to the spiritual health of the church or the success of the Christian mission. And in fact, he says those things can be downright detrimental to real spiritual success because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is God's strategy for his work in this world, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't lose your confidence in God's plan. Now, that's a really long introduction. But I want to delve into this passage, and I want to begin with a question. Why, why did God choose to advance the kingdom of Christ through the testimony of an unimpressive remnant rather than recruiting those people who are the most admired, the most articulate, the most authoritative, the most aristocratic? That's what I would have done. Why did God do it the other way? Why did he do it his way? Why did he choose that which is despised? The answer is given right here in our passage, and there are three parts to the answer. God is doing it this way because it confounds the wise, it frustrates the strong, and it humiliates the proud. That's why. So let's look at these reasons one at a time. First, it confounds the wise. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The King James Version uses the word confounds, and I'm using it here, but I need to explain that the point here is not that wise people are confused or baffled by this. It's true. They are confounded in precisely that way. Their worldview is confused and confusing, and ultimately their worldview is inconsistent with itself. But the point of the word Paul uses here is not about how disordered and illogical human wisdom is. His point here is that all of those who are thought to be wise in this world are going to be put to shame. They are disgraced. Their ignorance is revealed by simple truths that the world deems foolish. You see some classic examples of this in our, our culture today where you know, the academic elite and most of our political leaders and all the self-styled professional fact-checkers and everybody in the entertainment world and all that are frantically trying to accommodate the epidemic of gender confusion by insisting that, you know, there's an infinite number of genders and an infinite array of personal pronouns that you can choose from. And that's the, uh, that's the received wisdom today. And if you've ever tried to make sense of any article in the newspaper or where, you know, where the editors have tried to accommodate some gender-confused person's wish to be called they rather than he or she, you try to read that article, you know from experience that using a plural pronoun to refer to an individual person actually renders your message unintelligible. You can't make sense of it. And thus, as Paul is going to say in chapter 3, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And worldly wisdom is exposed as utter foolishness by the simplest, most elementary biblical truths. You can sum up the Bible's answer to all of the gender confusion 
in one statement from Jesus, Mark 10, verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. How hard is that? Countless thought leaders today will step up to try to tell you that the, the idea of binary genders is outmoded and foolish. And that is exactly what Paul means when he says in verse 25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Uh, in fact, I spent some time this week trying to make some sense of the world's current wisdom on gender identity. And <clears throat> I was driven once again to the inescapable conclusion that a world hostile to Christ actually prefers sheer nonsense over even the most obvious truths. In the words of Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I read one, page, one webpage that purports to demonstrate, using quasi-academic, scientific-sounding terminology, that there are at least 72 genders besides male and female. I couldn't stomach, actually, I couldn't read the whole article, I admit, I didn't read the whole thing, but and I couldn't stomach more than one article like that, but I noticed when I Googled it that there were hundreds of similar sources making all sorts of claims about how many genders there are. Some said as few as seven, others argued that there are as many genders as there are people, and so apparently no one really knows. The only thing they all agreed on is that they refuse to believe Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and the truth that in the day when God created humanity, he created them male and female. That's just one of several currently popular ideas that dominate worldly discourse today that, that ought to make it clear to anyone who's still capable of common sense that, as verse 25 says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Vody made this same point on Sunday, the, the most honored people in the realm of academic sophistication savagely mock the notion, the biblical account, of six-day creation, the, the truth that our omnipotent and all-wise God put His glory on permanent display by speaking the universe into existence in six days' time, and furthermore, He filled it with clear and obvious evidences of his infinite wisdom and goodness and power. And we're told that in Scripture, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. But the wise men and scribes and debaters of this age insist that the entire universe suddenly exploded into existence out of a total void, with no cause, with no intelligent design. In other words, everything came from nothing. And nothing caused it to happen. Or as, as John MacArthur says it, the so-called science of our generation starts with this absurd formula, nobody times nothing equals everything. That's this world's wisdom, and it is manifest foolishness. And yet, the average person prefers to follow the majority and believe what's acceptable rather than stand with the faithful remnant. And note this well, the worldly consensus does not merely doubt the truth of God's Word. They hate it. They will mock and deride it. They try to silence and suppress it. And in some cases, they'll put you in prison, literally, if you say it out loud. Or worse, they'll put you to death if you confess 
that you believe God's word rather than this world's wisdom. In fact, before his conversion, Paul had been one of the chief persecutors of Christians. So he knew from both sides of the equation the reality of how utterly antithetical this world's wisdom is to the simple truth of God. And Paul constantly described the conflict between God's truth and worldly wisdom as a conflict that can only be pictured as warfare. It's not a disagreement to be talked out. It's a war. Paul told Timothy, for example, 1 Timothy 1.18, fight the good fight, wage the good warfare. He was reminding Timothy that the church, the, the true and faithful remnant, is engaged in spiritual warfare. And our enemies are not flesh and blood. This isn't a a battle with literal weapons. We are fighting a war against demonic ideologies, worldly speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 10. And he says the goal is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And thereby, we liberate people who are in bondage because of sin. We liberate them from the ideological strongholds that this world's so-called wisdom has raised up against the knowledge of God. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. And that's the whole point. You cannot honestly portray the ideological drift of worldly wisdom as anything less than demonic, right? That's precisely how Scripture describes the battle that we are supposed to be waging for the truth. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's describing demons. These are demons, and the belief systems that they foment are evil. They are demonic. Yet in our generation, there is a plethora of influential voices in the church who insist that any hostility between the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God is a bad thing, and that the culture war that's caused by that is entirely the fault of the church. We're the ones who are wrong. We're the ones who need to be be changed. One of the most unbiblical ideas that seems to dominate big movement evangelicalism is this this notion that Christians need to adopt and integrate into our beliefs as much of this world's wisdom as possible. You know, we need to make peace with the world's values, they say. We need to make friends with the world's system as much as possible. Let's not be adversarial to the world or, or its favorite ideologies. And that is 180 degrees opposite of what Scripture tells us. Just two days ago, I encountered a video where Andy Stanley looked into the camera and made a general apology to all non-Christians because he said, it's not the business of Christians to tell the rest of the world what they should think and how they should live. Really? And then last week, Tim Keller posted a tweet calling for peaceful coexistence, those were exact words, between Christians and our ideological adversaries. He said, quote, we shouldn't demonize them. But their ideologies are demonic, Scripture says. We're talking about, in fact, for anyone who understands what the Scripture says about 
spiritual warfare and the folly of friendship with the world, it's pretty hard to understand or, or sympathize with any plea like that. Keller cannot possibly be oblivious to the fact that Scripture does explicitly say that we are at war against doctrines of demons. We don't demonize them. They are demonic. We're talking about drag queen story time sessions and people who aggressively promote transgenderism and homosexuality and abortion and a host of other evils. But don't ever say anything that might make the purveyors of those doctrines sad or angry. That seems to be the new evangelistic strategy, accommodation. And it's not merely that evangelicals try to avoid conflict with the world's beliefs and values. It seems that one of the main things large movement evangelicalism is engaged in today is a relentless campaign to try to adjust the truth of Scripture, including the gospel message, in order to tone it down or abridge it as much as possible. And so the strategists and style coaches of the broad evangelical movement try to integrate worldly wisdom wherever they think they can. They adopt high-sounding academic jargon. They embrace whatever happens to be intellectually stylish at the moment. And they believe that if they do this, our religion won't seem foolish to people who are steeped in this world system. That is not the approach Paul takes. He doesn't try to defend Christianity with sophisticated-sounding intellectual arguments. Notice in our text, he admits, yeah, it sounds foolish. The Greeks think this is foolish, but we preach Christ crucified. He doesn't try to adapt to their intellectual level. He didn't even do that on Mars Hill when he spoke to what were literally the world's leading philosophers of his time. His line of argument with them went straight to the doctrine of bodily resurrection, even though he knew full well that Greeks think that idea is the very height of callow absurdity. And here in Corinth, which was a culture very much like ours, an intellectual culture like Athens, enthralled with both fleshly depravity and intellectual pride, Paul says, chapter 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, wait a minute. This is an intellectual society, and Paul knew it. He had the tools to speak to them on their level. He knew knew where they are. Verse 22, Greeks seek for wisdom. And Paul understood, verse 18, that the word of the cross is foolishness in their hearing. And verse 22, to preach Christ crucified is foolishness to this audience. And furthermore, like I said, Paul had all of the tools he would have needed to impress the Athenians and the Corinthians with all of his erudition and a lot of academic jargon and all of his academic degrees. But Paul tells us He purposely did not try to make the gospel message sound any less foolish. He didn't try to dress it up with lofty speech and philosophical sophistication. It's a simple message, Jesus Christ crucified. Why cloud it with artificial refinement? He acknowledges that the gospel is a stumbling block to some and sheer foolishness to others, but he purposely preaches it anyway. Why? Because verse 24, the power of God and the wisdom of God is in that message. 
He tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And it intrigues me. And by the way, this passage is the exact biblical text that first pointed me to Christ and led to my own conversion. It has always intrigued me and amazed me that Paul continues to refer to the gospel as the foolishness of God, even though he knows it's wiser than men, wiser than any man, wiser than all men put together. It's wiser than Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Einstein combined. But Paul is willing to concede for the moment that the gospel sounds foolish. He calls it the foolishness of God. Chapter 2, verse 4, my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 21, God himself was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And here is why Paul didn't see any need to challenge the worldly perception that God's truth is foolish. Verse 27, because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The truth is that when we preach the gospel faithfully, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. It is a wisdom, however, that is not of this age nor of the rulers of this age because, chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And so, the foolish-sounding truth of God confounds the worldly wise. It puts him to shame. It exposes his utter lack of understanding. And the duty of the faithful remnant is to proclaim the truth anyway, regardless of whether people think it sounds foolish, because it is the power of God for salvation, for the salvation of the remnant, those who God chose. And in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The truly faithful remnant get that, and that's what keeps them steadfast. Here's a second reason God chose to work through an unimpressive remnant rather than building the kingdom through a sophisticated public relations strategy. First, it confounds the wise. Now, second, it frustrates the strong. And this is the second half of verse 27. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. One of the most fascinating paradoxes and one of the most important truths that we learn as Christians is the principle that Paul spells out in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, that power is perfected in weakness. Fallen humanity has a sinful tendency to forget that God is ultimately the source of all strength. Even though we pray, thine is the power and the glory, it's a universal tendency for all humans, including us Christians, to, to try to take credit for whatever strength we have. We wrongly assume that we have control over our own physical well-being. And the older you get, the more you learn that's not the case. All human strength is graciously given by God. It's something to be grateful for, not something to be proud of. But in this context, Paul isn't talking about our physical strength as individuals. He expressly is talking about how the world sees the church. Remember, they see us as foolish and weak and lacking in prestige. And Paul says, so what? Look at yourselves. Verse 26, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. 
He's saying, it is a fact that if you look through the lens with which the world sees the church, we are foolish and base and, and weak and mostly devoid of wisdom, power, and prestige. However, he says, verse 27, this is God's strategy. It's on purpose. It's deliberate. Despite what the cultural apologists in Big Eva keep trying to tell us, the world will not be more inclined to embrace biblical Christianity if the church could just shed this lowbrow, conservative, culturally backward image. God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world and the base things of the world and despised. This is God's deliberate strategy, and that means you cannot improve on the scheme or inject enough style and sophistication and status into the church to make your message and ministry have a more appeal to the prejudices and, and preferences of the world. God's chosen strategy doesn't need to be strengthened. It can't possibly be made any stronger by letting, you know, these self-styled church growth gurus and strategists revamp God's strategy and redesign the church. You know, Brian McLaren wrote a couple of books a little more than a decade ago. One was titled, A New Kind of Christian, and the other was, A New Kind of Christianity. And I always thought the falsehood that underlies all of Brian McLaren's departure from biblical Christianity is revealed in the title of his two books. We don't need a new kind of Christianity, and we don't need Christians of a different sort. God chose what is weak to shame the wise, and his strength is made perfect in weakness. And as we noted earlier, all of the church growth experts' schemes to improve the church or revamp ministry strategy, those things have failed anyway. Long record of failure. How difficult is this principle? Verse 25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Therefore, verse 27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to frustrate the strong. It's the very same principle that explains why God required Gideon to go to war against the vast Midianite army with, with a small ragtag group of 300 men when he actually had started with 32,000 volunteers. That might not make much sense from the perspective of human wisdom, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And God chooses to employ human weakness, on the one hand, to frustrate the strong, and on the other hand, so that no flesh may boast before God. And so, let's get to that. Here's a third reason God's people are an unremarkable remnant rather than a rousing multitude of dignitaries and A-listers. One, it confounds the wise. Two, it frustrates the strong. And now third, it humiliates the proud. And here Paul sums up the whole issue in the simplest possible terms. Why does God employ people in things that appear to be foolish and weak? Verse 28, God has chosen the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh can boast before God. This is the summary of the whole matter. And it's a theme that if you pay attention you will find in one form or another in every epistle written by the Apostle Paul. No flesh has any right ever to boast before God. 
Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. 1 Corinthians 3.21, let no one boast in men. 2 Corinthians 11.30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, by grace you've been saved, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. Philippians 3.3, we boast in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And he goes on. This is a perpetual theme with the Apostle Paul. He hated the very idea of human pride, especially that religious brand of pride that thinks it has a reason to boast while it stands before God. And in his pre-conversion years, as a devoted Pharisee, that was actually the defining feature of Paul's religion, boastful pride before God. He was like that Pharisee in Luke 18, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, not even like this publican over here. I fast twice in the week. I, I give tithes of all I possess. That was Paul. And conversion utterly erased that attitude from Paul. And he keeps reminding us what an egregious sin it is to have confidence in our own flesh. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, where Paul describes what the spirit of the age will be in those last days when perilous times will come. Boastful human pride is virtually the defining mark. Men will be lovers of self, he says, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. Notice, they hold to a form of godliness. He's describing religious people there. I think he's describing a lot of really important evangelical leaders, frankly. In fact, I would say that passage reads like a description of the evangelical megachurch culture. It's not merely the secular world that cultivates those traits. And if the visible church is ever going to regain any semblance of spiritual health, you and I need to devote ourselves to inculcating the lessons of this text and the principle of the remnant in the minds of genuine believers who are under our care as shepherds. I am saddened but not discouraged when so many people, especially Christian celebrities, deconstruct their faith and deconvert from Christianity. You see this all the time these days. They depart from the church. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be made manifest that they are not of us. That's 1 John 2.19. And what it's saying is that God has a good purpose for driving people out of the church when their faith is just a false and superficial pretense. It's the same reason he radically diminished the size of Gideon's army. It's the same reason Jesus chased off so many of his followers in John 6. He chooses a remnant rather than a massive multitude so that our faith will not be in the wisdom and power of men and majorities, but in the power of God. And the current wave of people who apostatize, that's not weakening the church. That's not nullifying our testimony. It is, however, pointing us back to the true source of our strength and reminding us that the only power and efficacy we have as proclaimers of the gospel 
doesn't lie in human might or power or wisdom or prestige or clever strategies or any of the fleshly instruments that we're tempted to rely on, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are, however, divinely power for the tearing down of ideological strongholds. And the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. We don't need a large army to win this spiritual war. We just need to learn to rely on him who truly is our strength and our salvation. The battle is his. The strength is his. The triumph will be his. And one last thing, if you ever feel ashamed of the church or your fellow believers because they seem foolish and feeble and menial, you need to reorient your perspective. Don't look at the church through worldly lens. This congregation that looks so unimpressive to the world, you know, people without a clue, without clout, without class, these are actually some of the most blessed and beloved and privileged people ever. Romans 8, 16 and 17, we're children of God, children of God, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, just waiting to be glorified with him. And even with all of that gracious privilege, we don't have anything to boast about. Back to our text. Paul ends this chapter with a powerful declaration of his Calvinistic convictions. Verse 30. I'm sorry, but it does. I'm not making this up. Verse 30. It is by his doing. In other words, God is the one who gets all the credit for this the fact that you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That is the whole lesson of the remnant and the reason this is such a powerful principle. To God alone belongs the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. It's not a novel truth. In fact, Let me sum it all up and close with a quote from the prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11. This is our prayer as well. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. And we add, Lord, strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.